And uh, after we get done with the slide presentation, uh, we're, they're going to be uh, selling it in the uh, bookstore here, and I'll be signing copies if you want. Um, but mainly, I'm, I'm not here to talk about the book so much. It's just about Frank Lloyd Wright in Montana. It's what's covered in the book, but I'm trying to add a little value to add it here. Um, my background is I did my master's thesis on Frank Lloyd Wright, and I've been around to about 50 of his buildings and done a lot of research and writing on him. So I taught a course on him one time in uh, University of New Mexico, continuing education and so forth. So I, I'm interested, I'm a fascinado, and I, when I came out to Montana in 2006, I was shocked to find out, because Montana doesn't get a lot of credit for being Frank Lloyd Wright State. I mean, you hear about Chicago, uh, Los Angeles, uh, Tokyo with the Imperial Hotel. Yeah, you hear about uh, Wisconsin, Taliesin, Arizona, Taliesin. But you know, Montana has quite a Frank Lloyd Wright legacy. And uh, I thought, Rick Newby, Drum Lemon, we thought that, well, we should, we should advertise this a little bit. Montana deserves some credit for having a Frank Lloyd Wright legacy. And we do have quite a legacy, as you'll see. We'll be going through it. Frank Lloyd Wright uh, basically worked on three projects in, uh, in Montana. He started out in the Bitterroot, 1909. And he did a project in Darby, just off Bunkhouse Road as you're driving down there. And um, it's called Alpine Meadows now. But in 1909, it was called Como Orchard, Summer Colony. And uh, it was Apple Grove and a big project he designed. And they actually built 15 buildings in Montana, Frank Lloyd Wright, 13 down there in Darby. And they built one big clubhouse, two-story, a lodge. Uh, they built a land office, and they built um, 11 uh, cabins. Now, two of those cabins still exist. Uh, and then in next year, 1910, he went up the road, or he designed a place up the road near Stevensville um, on um, East Side Highway. If you know where um, Three Mile Road is, that's about just a little northeast. And designed a beautiful inn there called the Bitterroot Inn, which you'll see also. And it stood until 1924, and unfortunately there was a fire, and it burned to the ground. Uh, and then in 1959, Wright went to Whitefish, where he designed the building in Whitefish, a medical clinic called the Lockridge Clinic, which is now the Frampton Morrison Law Firm in Whitefish. And it's, it's quite pretty. It's a different phase of Frank Lloyd Wright's architecture, the same, same grammar, but a little bit different style over the years, because it's 50 years later. 1959, he designed it, built in 1962. Um, so, Frank, so in Montana, we have, we have three buildings. We've got the Whitefish Clinic in, in Whitefish, the Lockridge Clinic, which is now the Morrison Frampton Law Firm. We've got Alpine Meadows in Darby, with two cabins there, two houses. So we have three buildings existed. We had 15 that were built. We had one of the Frank Lloyd Wright's major town planning exercises, uh, which I'll talk to you about a little bit, too, which is in a Bitterroot town near Stevensville. So we have quite a Frank Lloyd Wright legacy in our own right. And we thought, well, it's about time to publicize it a little bit. So, And it's interesting. And a lot of people here don't even know and haven't been down to, to Darby and Stevensville and, and uh, Whitefish to see some of those buildings. So I want everybody to know about them because they're really worth seeing. Uh, I want to thank, first of all, I want to thank Kate Hampton and Kirby Lambert, the Historical Society and Preservation Office for all the work they've done uh, in making this possible. And also, uh, Kate, for getting the Frank Lloyd Wright buildings that still exist in Montana, the three, uh, on the historic register to preserve them. And for um, all your help. And you'll see a lot of photographs from both the Historical Society archives here 
and also from the State Preservation, Historical Preservation Office. So thank you for your photographs for the book and for the show. Uh, let me just start right out, um, get into Frank Lloyd Wright, Montana now. Um, let's start out with 1909, it's February 15th. This picture was taken at Frank Lloyd Wright about that time. He was 42 years old. He's been practicing architecture for 20 years already. He's not famous, but he's becoming well-known in Chicago and the Midwest. He's, um, he's between two phases in his architecture. He's a little burnt out. It's 1909, it's February, he gets off the train in Missoula. He drives, has a car take him down. There's a local architect named Ensley in Missoula who takes him down to uh, Darby, where he has a proposed project down there. And so he's going down to walk the land like he always does, like he did at Falling Water and everywhere else, to know every boulder, every rock, every tree, every, every contour in the land. If he's going to design a big project down there, it could include up to 51 buildings, he's going to have to know it. 15 are going to get built right away. So he gets off, he gets off the train. He's taken by uh, Ensley, who we'll talk about later because he built a house perhaps for Ensley in, in, in Hamilton, which we'll look at and see if it really is. And he gets off the train. He goes down to Darby. It's 1909. He is 42 years old. He's been practicing for 20 years. He was the draftsman for Louis Sullivan, who's one of the great modernist architects. Started modernism in architecture. He and Wright in the United States. Sullivan did the buildings. Wright did the houses. A couple of guys in Europe were also in that group in Vienna and Glasgow. But those are the guys who started modernism around 1900 in architecture. Frank Lloyd Wright, most famous American architect, gets off the train, goes down to Darby. He's in between phases. He's burned out. He's tired. He's been doing something called prairie houses, which has made him famous. And um, let me just show you a picture of a prairie house. We'll go, we'll go forward just a second. You've all seen them. They're these large mansions, large houses in the Midwest. This is the, the Roby House at the University of Chicago. Um, and you see they're very geometric and modern. There's flat surfaces and uh, lots of geometry there. Lots of planes intersecting vertical and horizontal, mainly horizontal planes. Not much decoration tacked on. It's mainly the decoration comes from the engineering itself and from the building materials. In this case, the Roman brick uh, and a lot of glass and new, new building materials like concrete. You can see the cantilevered roof coming over. That took steel reinforced concrete to do that. People weren't doing that until Frank Lloyd Wright started doing it, except for the Romans, of course, going way back. So um, this is all very modern, abstract. No styles, no Renaissance, Baroque, uh, Tudor, whatever. This is modern American architecture, prairie houses. They're low and spreading. They're supposed to reflect the prairie by being low and spreading. And my, I guess I don't need this, come to think of it, but um, I'm not used to this. There's another one. This is the Willits house. Can you still hear me OK? No. No, OK. Hold it up. Does this help any? Oh, well. Uh, this is the Ward Willis House in Chicago, uh, another prairie house. that he's, These houses are making him famous now. He built about 100 of these around the Midwest. Not all this big. There are about eight or nine masterpieces. And these I'm showing you the most beautiful, the largest. These are huge houses. And uh, you can see he uses art glass windows. The only decoration in these houses, really, there's no shutters, no gables, not much tacked on. Uh, the only decoration really are the art glass windows. And he uses strip windows, you know, together. And he uses a lot of plaster, actually mixed with, mixed with local soil to make it more organic, to reflect. The house is supposed to reflect and sort of grow out of the environment it comes from. Um, so, let me see, there's, this is the Hurtley House. 
And this one is brick, the other one was plaster. Um, so you can see this is uh, in Chicago too, near his own house in, in Oak Park suburb. I'll just give you an example of prairie houses that made him famous. Um, and, but he's tired, he's been doing this, these houses from 1901 to 1909, and they're beautiful. And they really caught the Europeans' eyes in particular. Guys like Mies van der Rohe and Le Corbusier, they love the geometry, they love the engineering, the, the sort of the, the form-following function of the house, having large, big rooms inside, a lot of space, not many walls, windows, the house doesn't have windows, which are just holes punched into the, into the house, and it doesn't have um, uh, rooms within room, boxes within boxes. It's all open space inside, open plan. So this is all modern. Europeans loved it. He becomes more popular in Europe. Um, and he's in Montana, but in eight months, he's going to go to Europe. And he's going to become famous there for something called the Bosmuth Portfolio in Germany. He's going to have a big exhibition. And that sets him on his fame. He's not yet famous, and he gets to Montana, but he's getting there fast. Um, so the other thing is that's going on with him when he gets off the train is he's, um, by the way, he, he, decide, he starts a whole prairie school of architecture. It's not just him doing prairie houses. These are called prairie houses, organic, blend in with nature, uh, lots of new materials like glass and steel, concrete, cappings, and so forth. Um, but he also um, is creating a whole group of young architects who work with him who are building prairie houses around the United States. One of those architects is William Gray Purcell from St. Paul, Minnesota. And if you've seen the O'Connell House, uh, at Dearborn Stewart, that's, uh, that's William Gray Purcell. That's the guy who worked with Frank Lloyd Wright in his office in Chicago. Other guys, Walter Burley Griffin. There's two houses in Billings that they think are Walter Burley Griffin houses because he went out there to design Moss Town for the Moss family. They're on Grand Avenue uh, in Billings. I've seen them. They could be. They look like they're prairie houses. So, um, so Wright's influence goes way beyond just Wright. Just seeing the O'Connell House as an example. Um, so anyway, he's in between phases where he's doing, he's been doing these houses, he's burnt out, he's tired of doing prairie houses, that's all he's known for, and he says, prairie house, I've had enough prairie houses, I've got to do something new. He kept changing his whole life, as you know. Eventually he'll be doing falling water and something else we'll look at. So he's going to, and I'm sorry to have a slide of this, he's going to some kind of a pre-Columbian look, using concrete blocks. He's going to do this in California. He's going to start it in about 1915. He's going to do it a little bit earlier in 1911 in Japan, building the Imperial Hotel. He's going to carve lava. But he's into kind of a pre-Columbian Mayan look. This going away from prairie houses, which are brick and plaster and horizontal. And this is the Freeman House in Los Angeles, by the way, which is beautiful, if you're ever out there. He built four of these type of houses. Textile blocks are all wired together. They're hollow blocks with wires, with steel rods inside of them and so forth that have ventilation and so forth. Fascinating houses, beautiful. Uh, they're like living fossils. But that's where he's going. He's going, he's going by 1910, 1911. He's going to be in Japan. He's going to start phase two of his life. Phase one is prairie houses in the Midwest. Phase two is Japan, California, Arizona. Um, Arizona comes a little later, 1927, but nonetheless, Arizona, California, Japan, the West. But the first commission in the West, the first stop in the West, Darby. First stop, Montana, Missoula. He decides to go to Montana. It's a very important project for him um, because he not only gets to design houses, he gets to design a whole town, as we'll see when we get into it. And he loves town planning because he has ideas about life, about combining rural and urban <laughs> lifestyles. Can, can people hear me, by the way, on this? Can you hear? Okay. 
So, but anyway, like I say, the seeds have been planted for him to be famous. He's in the middle of two phases. He's, just, he's actually disgruntled. He's, he's having trouble producing right now, but he wants to have a project where he's dealing with nature. He wants to be out in nature. And he wants to take his Chicago friends, because the professors at the University of Chicago and businessmen in Chicago who are his friends, are pretty wealthy, they're saying, we'd like to have some summer houses. Well, he said, okay, in 1902, he built them some summer houses, five of them at Lake Delavan in Wisconsin. And a, year, a couple years later, he built some more at uh, White, uh, Whitehall Lake in Michigan. You'll see a couple of them. So he thinks, well, let's, let's build a summer mountain retreat for my friends from Chicago. They can live out here in the summers uh, and tend their apple orchards and then go back and teach University of Chicago. And he invested his own money in it, by the way. Um, so, so he's burnt out. He's looking for a new style. He wants a place for his friends. They were asking for a summer resort, uh, some nice place. He thinks Montana's a great place. So we'll do, try that. So he comes out here, and he's also in the middle of a divorce. He's, um, he's uh, having an affair with his neighbor's wife, Mae Machini. She will die in 1914 at, at Taliesin East in a fire, murder. But um, basically, he's leaving his wife. He's just told her five months before he comes to Montana. And by eight months after he leaves Montana, he'll be off to Europe with Mae Machini. And so that's a, it's kind of a traumatic point in his life. And I raise this because later on, there are going to be questions asked about the projects in Montana. Was he supervising them the way he should have been supervising them, and so forth. And it, some people say, well, his office was falling apart. His life was falling apart. Uh, but he still managed to do the job. So we'll look at that. But I want you to know what's going on. So basically, we're starting with Frank Lloyd Wright, 1909. I set the stage for this. Now we're going to talk about Montana. First, we'll do this. Um, 1909, so what's going on in Montana in 1909? Why is it coming to Montana? Why Montana? It's because in, starting in the, as we know, you know Montana history. In 1883 to 1887, the railroads come in. And in 1887, uh, Marcus Daly starts building an irrigation canal from Como Lake, Lake Como, down in um, the Bitterroot, up to Hamilton area to prepare for, to build, develop agriculture. He needs irrigation. And he wants to build these tablelands uh, for irrigation and agricultural production. The population in the valley is growing because of mining timber. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But at this time, 19, or about 1900, um, 1909, there's a big apple boom going on, just like there was in Yakima, Wenatchee, Washington. Uh, the country is crazy about these apples. And so they're marketing them, making money off Macintosh Red. So they, all these people come up with plans. And this time, it's also a time of great development schemes and financial schemes, trusts. And uh, so Montana's got a lot of those, too. And people are trying to develop the Bitterroot. There's great potential for agriculture, great potential for apple orchards down there. If they can do it in Yakima, they can do it there. And, uh, and the fact is that there's a growing valley population that will have these alfalfa, soy, uh, oats, everything else that, that, that we need for agriculture and animals. Uh, so it's a big development scheme, and a guy named Samuel Dinsmore decides, okay, we're going to, we're going to build a, a resort down in Darby. And he's one of these developers. And he gets local money together, and they start clearing the land. They start adding to this ditch, this irrigation ditch that, that uh, uh, Marcus uh, started. They start to expand this to call it the big ditch. And they're going to run this project 54 miles, this, this irrigation canal. Big, huge wooden irrigation canal. I'll have the picture up for you later. 
they're going to run it 54 miles from Lake Como all the way up to Stevensville because they're not only going to build, they're going to build an apple orchard colony in Darby and they're also going to build one up by Stevensville and they're going to have 1,500 acres of apple orchards in Darby for people to have their little plots and their cabins there and then they're going to have 15,000 acres, a town, a town of 1,000 in Bitterroot Town near Stevensville. Rice is designing all this. He's back in the office working, designing all these things. So Dinsmore tries to get the money together. He can't get it together. So he goes to Chicago. This is typical for the early 1900s trust era. He goes to Chicago and this guy named W.I. Moody, big developer, says, okay, I think it's a great investment. We'll bring University of Chicago, all these Chicago businessmen out here. We'll let them come down there and we'll sell them plots. We'll sell them um, 10 acre plots, $400 an acre. And we'll start the apple trees for them. We'll cultivate them. And after five years, when they reach maturity, then these people come down and live in their summer cabins. They just come down in the summers and they take care of the apple trees and they harvest the apples. And we even help market the apples for them after they harvest them. And we get 10% of the profits. It's a very good deal for people that want to have, want to get out of Chicago in the winter, which is not a bad idea. I mean, the summer even, hot. Winter's okay, not winter good either. Summer, yeah. Get out of Chicago in the summer, I'll do that. You know, come down to Montana, the Bitterroot, between the Bitterroot and the Sapphires. You get a 10-acre plot, you got a little cabin, you can choose from one of four cabins that Frank Lloyd Wright will design for you. And um, you get a little exercise, and you make some money, you know? It's great. In fact, it may still be a good idea, come to think of it. <laughs> a lot of people are saying, well, maybe Wright was before his time, you know? So, and, and so Frank Lloyd Wright liked this kind of idea. He was approached by Moody, who's his friend in Chicago. These guys from Montana come up to Chicago and they tell Moody, we, want, we need money because we've got to build all these irrigation uh, plumes and, and canals and it's expensive and we've got to leaven the, clear the land, plant the trees. It's going to take a lot of money. But there's a fortune to be made in it, as we found out in Yakima. There's a fortune to be made in the Hood Valley. So we're going to, uh, we're going to do all this, but we need some money. So, and we need people who are willing to invest and to build these little houses. You find your professor, Chicago businessman, who want to go west for the summer and uh, do this work and, and so forth. So Moody goes to his best friend, one of his best friends, Frank Lloyd Wright, who just happens to be an architect, well-known one, has, shares an office, he lives in the same office building, a rookery building in South Chicago, which Frank Lloyd Wright designed the law before if you're ever in Chicago, a big glass dome. Moody's office is in there, Wright's is in there for a while before the auditorium building. They're friends. So Moody goes to Wright and says, this is December of 1908, says, we need your help. We need you to start designing cabins, clubhouses, you know, towns. And Wright loves it. Right? This is something new for him. This is not prairie houses anymore. This is a variant of the prairie houses. These are rustic houses. And Wright loves the idea of getting people out of the cities, which he calls man killers. Get them into the countryside. Get the fresh air. Combine this a rural and agrarian atmosphere. And put people in the cities where they're with uh, people sort of like friends of theirs, uh, uh, like-minded individuals, he called it. Get them together. He's been doing this a lot. So anyway, Frank Lloyd Wright is, um, and Montana are joining together. So Frank Lloyd Wright's going to be the architect. This guy, Dinsmore, and Moody. Moody has a guy that works for him named Nichols, who comes down and works the project down here in Montana, Hamilton. And... Um, so anyway, Wright, and this puts Wright together with Montana. Wright starts doing the designs. He comes down here to see the land. He does the designs. He goes back to his office in April 1909. He draws 54 sheets of, of plans for um, the clubhouse, the different type of cabins, 
there are going to be two kinds of cabins, one bedroom, two bedroom, three bedroom, so forth. But there's lots of different plans. So he puts together all these plans, um, and so he gets very involved in the Bitterroot. And um, so this is the, all part of the development thing that's going on in Montana. And the apple boom. Um, and so um, that's just a little background on, on why Wright is involved and how he gets involved and the conjunction of what's going on in Montana with what's going on in Wright's li life, just to give you an idea of what's going on in 1909. Um, let me go forward here a little bit. One of the things about Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, this is the uh, Samuel Gertz uh, summer cottage in Whitehall, Michigan, up on the Great Lakes, like, like Delvan. And this, is, Wright did this uh, before he did the Montana stuff. This was for some Chicago businessmen who wanted a nice place out on the Great Lakes. Um, the Gale and the Gertz families, basically. Lake Delvan had more families than Ross's and Spencer's. These are all Chicago <laughs> families, but not all of them. But, um, you can see what he decided to do. Wright is going to do a variant. He's not doing prairie houses anymore. He's going to do a variant called Rustics. They still have the prairie house <coughs> elements, the key elements. They still got kind of a hip roof with an overhanging eaves. Still got a fireplace, but Wright always had a hearth in the house. They're board and batten, wooden, uh, uh, horizontal look to them, strip windows all combined together, um, and so forth. It's kind of the right prairie house design, but it's an inexpensive variant. As you can see, it's not one of those big brick and plaster beautiful things. It's, it's rustic. It's meant to be rustic. It's meant to be inexpensive. It's meant to be summer uh, cottage, basically. And this is one he'd done already in Michigan. And I show it to you because he did a bunch of these. And this is where he gets the idea for what he's going to use in Montana. And you'll see later in the Montana, there's a precedent for the Montana ones. Um, so he's doing the, the Gertz house, and he's doing a bunch of houses like this. And these are, these are variants of the Prairie House. He's also, he's into lodges in about 19, 1908, 1909 period. This is a place called the Horseshoe Inn in Estes Park, Colorado. It wasn't built like this. It was built differently. Um, but this was the plan. And, and um, you can see he did several of the same type of lodges at this time. Because he's, he's not doing the houses so much anymore. But he's doing lodges. He's got one on Lake Geneva. He's got this one in Estes Park he's planning to build. He's got a huge McCormick house he's building up in, in the Great Lakes. He's got a um, uh, Lake Mendota in in Madison, there's one that he's designed. Um, he's got a Yahara boathouse in uh, Madison design. He's also got a um, River Forest tennis and golf club in uh, Oak Park, where he lives. So they're all like this, pretty much like this. That's some, and I show you this because I want to show you the background to the buildings he's building in Montana, the Gertz cabin and these things. So these are ways going on. And this is, by the way, a drawing. Uh, for the Wasmuth portfolio um, that would go in that book in Germany that, that all the people got crazy about in Europe. So, we go on. This is the River Forest uh, Tennis and Golf Club in Chicago suburb where he lived. See the board and batten, the hip roast overhanging eaves, uh, sort of the standard architecture. I'm sorry I don't have a better picture of that, but I wanted to see basically what he's, he's going to. This is, this is more direct. Now we are. We're in the Wasmoth portfolio. He takes this to Europe because he's going to do that big exhibit in, in Europe in 1910. 
He's putting together this portfolio that becomes famous in the annals of architecture. Even today, everybody, all the architects talk about the Wasmuth portfolio. Because this one, we've got Le Corbusier, Mies van der Rohe, Gropius, all excited about modern architecture in Europe. When he went over there, they all gathered around him. It was a, it was a sensation. He was a phenom. This is the Como Orchard Clubhouse that he designed uh, back in Oak Park. Actually, his assistant named Marion Mahoney, second uh, woman to ever graduate from MIT in architecture, who worked for him, did beautiful work, as you can see. She was really talented. Um, she did this design for the Como Orchard Clubhouse. Now, what's going to actually be built is not going to be that fancy. But this was the genesis for it. And to show you how important he thought the Montana work was, when he put together the Wasmuth portfolio of all these, he took all of his works from 1901 to 1909, his best buildings. I mean, we're talking Unity Temple. We're talking um, the Coonley House in Chicago suburb. Talking Meyer May and Grand Rapids, all the best. Dana Springfield, his most famous houses, most beautiful houses. Shouldn't do this mixed media, but Darwin Martin in Buffalo. Beautiful, right? He took only his best. 72 of his best uh, that he'd done in 10 years because he's trying to make a splash, and he does. He takes 72, and only three of them does he have four pages. Usually each one gets one page. But four, three, three groups, Kunli, uh, Unity Temple, and Como, get four pages. That's how important the Montana work is to Frank Lloyd Wright. Not only did he put his own money into it, but he's making a centerpiece of his Wasmoth portfolio that becomes so important in the history of modern architecture, and really important for Le Corbusier and uh, Mies. So um, anyway, that's a little too much background for you, but um, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, I, I did want to get across the point that um, when, uh, when he's doing these prairie houses, the part of the grammar, which is important to know, is that his style is, we mentioned hip roofs, gently sloping, not too much, overhanging eaves, strip windows, art glass windows, um, and a very horizontal look, and layered, almost like pagoda, Japanese influence. Um, and you can see that there. But the, the decoration, he didn't like the word decoration, but he did have decoration. And decoration comes in the form of the art glass, the glass windows. He always liked the fenestration on the windows, the, uh, the uh, beautiful patterns and so forth. That, that was one place he would allow decoration in the structure. Not tacked on, but in the structure itself. The other decoration, of course, is the geometry itself. And the other decoration is the modern building materials he's working with. Uh, that, uh, that help him do this. But he uses colors of nature. It's very organic. So I just wanted to give you a few of those things about his, um, his modern ethos, which I forgot to do. Okay. So he goes back to, um, he goes back to his uh, studio in Oak Park. And the Walsmore's portfolio will come out later. And it's, it's sort of a glamorized version of what he's going to do. This is the version of the Combe Orchard Clubhouse, which he did in his office in Oak Park. Not part of the Wasmuth portfolio, not Marion Mahoney's beautiful stylized piece. This is what it's going to look like, more like this. When it actually gets built in, this is going to be the clubhouse in Como Orchards in Darby and have all the cabins around it. And I'll show you that in a second. This is going to be the individual cabin. There are going to be two kinds of cabins. This is from his, his original designs in April of 1909 in Oak Park in the studio. 
Chicago. Uh, you can see his board and batten, roof overhangs, drip windows, always a chimney, always a chimney. Um, but there's an external kind of, there are external walls around here uh, too, which he got rid of later. Um, so this is just to keep in mind of what, what he had in mind for Comb Orchard um, Clubhouse. Not Clubhouse, but Cabin, because we'll come back to it. There's another design from the Wadsworth portfolio, what the cabin's going to look like. This is the porch. It's not enclosed, the open porch. There's a living room in there, uh, but the porch is not enclosed. Later you'll see he enclosed it. Here we go. Here's, now we're on the Como Orchard. This is where we really start on what we're doing. This is Alpine Meadows now. Uh, Alpine Meadows has changed because a lot of these buildings are gone. So what he designed here uh, was there could be as many as 50 cabins here, ultimately, at 10 acres each, uh, and then a lot more around there in meadows and so forth. There's still trees, apple orchards, and groves up there, as Kate knows. These, these are, by the way, a lot of these are Kate's uh, photographs. Thank you, Kate Hampton, if you know Kate. But. So um, this is the Comb Orchard Clubhouse, the centerpiece, and it's supposed to be facing the Sapphire Mountains to the east. The, in front of it is a long area of sort of like park and meadow and, 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 and the fountains and ponds and kind of a central area with the houses. These are the three bedroom houses uh, around it uh, with their apple orchards around them and out in the meadows here. But basically these are the cabins. Like I say, 15 were built. Uh, the Como Orchard was built and then uh, five of these large houses were built. And then these are the smaller ones behind the orchard these are the one-room houses, one-bedroom houses, that are, um, and don't have kitchens. These have kitchens. They see their T-design. You come in the back. There's a kitchen in here and a storage area in here, uh, two bedrooms off to here, and kind of a living area and a, and a porch going off here. The, I'm sorry, the porch is out here. The bedrooms are here. The kitchens are back here. And some of them don't even have kitchens because he wanted to encourage people, wants people to work and live together, this community of like-minded individuals. He wants, them to, he wants them to socialize. He's going to have concerts out here on the thing for them. He likes culture. Um, he's going to also have a cafeteria in here, a dining room in here, a large dining room on both sides here of the central hall, which is very high two-story hall, uh, hall with fireplaces, pavilion in there, and the dining room's on both sides. So these people can cook that for themselves, but a lot of these people back here, there are no kitchens in those. So he's trying to get people, force people to come together for meals too. Uh, it's, giving, it's, kind of, it's collective, but it's individual, too, because you have your own house. Um, and it's combining rural and urban because you're doing your own uh, agricultural work, basically. Uh, and yet you have a community. Um, so anyway, and then back there are those houses. Now what's left, one of those houses was turned into a land office, and, uh, and five others were built of the, those one bedrooms. Uh, so there's six of those, five of these, clubhouse. Um, eventually, by 1945, the project fails, which we'll get into. And by 1945, the only thing that's left is in 1922, DuPont takes it over, called Morello Macintosh uh, Company Orchards. And they use it for not apples so much anymore, but for sheep and ranching, cattle grazing, and, and crops. And this has turned into a storage area. Sad, but true. And then in 1937, Morello sells out to another rancher there, and he eventually sells out. And eventually the place is not making it, and so it's just falling apart, and 
100 of Franklin Wright's 400 houses around the United States are gone, you know, so it's not unusual. But it just didn't make it. The project didn't make it. There were no developers. Uh, there were cost overruns. People were not coming out anywhere on the trains to look at it. Something just happened where it just didn't work. And so um, the project fell apart. But what remains, uh, this cabin remains. It's still out there, cabin 3C. Is that the right one, Kate? I might be off on that. I think it's the other side. Is it the other side over here? Okay, thank you. She knows better than I do. Okay. <laughs> this is her photograph, too. All these are. Cabin 3C right here remains. And you'll see it in actual photographs in a minute. Um, also, the land office. There's one of these one, one of these uh, one bedroom or one room cabins, basically one room cabins uh, with the fireplace in there. Uh, one of that is, was turned into a land office, and it remains, and we have a picture of that for you, too. So um, those two remain. It's a sad thing that the clubhouse is gone, but now I want to show you pictures of what they really look like before I get carried away here. There is a picture. That, that, do you know what year this was taken, Kate? This is from Historical Society, I think, archives. I want to say it's 15. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Um, here's the clubhouse. It's a T-shaped thing, two-story, with uh, apartments for visiting people to, and visitors to stay in, and professors who are thinking about buying investors get off the train. They stay on the top floor apartments. Down below, you have dining rooms and offices and that huge two-story lounge. Uh, and it's a beautiful lodge. Fireplace, there's three fireplaces going in there. But so this is it. Uh, there's a storage uh, barn type area for supplies and so forth over here, and um, you can see some of the houses are still around, and you can see the apple orchards all around. So um, this is Como Orchards when it was first getting started. I don't know. Do you know, Kate? I think yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. And later I'll tell you, I'll show you pictures of Alpine Meadows. You can still go out there. Stay overnight there. Um, okay, the cabin that remains. This is cabin 3C. Um, and you can see that it's got some of the typical strip windows and the overhangs. And there's a chimney back there, too. The, the board, this board and batten used to be board and batten, but they've taken some of that and put vertical planking, but it was board and batten. And these windows up here, which are storm windows now, used to have uh, patterns in them, which I'll show you in another slide. So this is, a, this is your rustic variant. This is what we call Lake or Forest Prairie House. Very famous. All the architecture historians of the time, like Henry Russell Hitchcock, were really impressed with this. And it is quite nice when you go inside, too. Um, let's see if i got something here I need to say. Um, there were... There were, like I say, uh, a number of variants of this that Franklin Wright had designed. All these people, you come in, you buy the plot of land, and then you get to choose which cabin you have built from about four to five different floor plans. One, two, three bedroom. So this is, this is a two bedroom. Um, Does somebody live in this place now? What's that? Does somebody live in there now? No, not at all. In fact, you can rent this. I don't know, Kate, if you still can, but um, you can. Um, they, the Alpine Meadows is mainly used for events like weddings and conferences and so forth, where big groups come in and rent the whole complex. But you can, if you're just an individual going out and if it's not being used for other things, they also have some apartments over here, but you can rent this house if you, you have to take it for five days, I believe it used to be, if you have it for five days. Forest service or? No, it's a private owner. Private owner. Mm -hmm. A guy named Charles Rowland 
uh, Alpine Mills, if you look online, Charles Rowland. Um, and I told Kate, it's just by coincidence, when I went to do the research and go ask to visit this place, I called Charles Rowland. And I realized that he was, uh, I went to high school in Des Moines, Iowa, my junior year. And Chuck was our high school quarterback, and I knew all the guys on the team. And so, strange, you run into him, you know, so, small world. But he's a very good guy. He likes Frank Lloyd Wright because after he went to Lincoln High School in Des Moines, he went to Madison, Wisconsin, to college, which is Frank Lloyd Wright territory. He became interested in Wright, and so he's tried to preserve Wright. And he's, he's gotten a lot of credit for doing it, for trying to preserve. He changed the storm windows. Yeah, I could have lived without that. I like the old windows. But it's okay. I understand why he has to do it. Um, he's kept it pretty good. There's, a, there's been some changes, but overall, so he's done a good job. And he's also built a new place called the Cider House, which is sort of very Wrightian, too, as you'll see. He believes in trying to preserve Wright if he can. He's, he's done a good job. Uh, here's another picture of it from a different angle. Like I say, it's kind of a T-shape. The entrance is in the back over there. I think the bedrooms are on this side, but two of them. Um, and the porch has been enclosed, as you can see. It's a little different than the one we saw earlier that was, had the external wall around it and so forth. You know. But it's pretty close. That's, that's uh, Kate's photograph, too, we just saw in this one, too. Um, this is the interior. And the windows that Chuck Rowland replaced when he had to put storm windows in, and he didn't want to do it, they had to do it, were like this, the, the, these mullion windows. That's typical Frank Lloyd Wright, those types of windows that he used. That's one of his few sources of decoration, remember, windows? So somewhere they had an auction. When this, when this place was torn down in 19, when the other houses were torn down in the 1930s, late 30s, and early 40s, they had an auction. And these windows are probably somewhere bought by somebody in the bid route. I've tried to find out, can't find out. Um, John Driscoll's taking me down there. We couldn't find out. Um, so anyway, these, these, uh, these houses are, these windows may be somewhere down there. I haven't wanted to go wandering around up there to find out where they are. But um, the other thing that happened was when the, when the clubhouse was torn down in 1945, it was used to make a barn, among other things. So there's probably a lot of the lumber from the old places down there, if you knew where to go to find it. I'd love to find it. I'd love to find some of those windows. But. So this is the interior, and you can see what I talked about. Frank Lloyd Wright, we didn't see the inside before, but he didn't like walls. Frank Lloyd Wright believed in open space, and he believed in being able to see through. You can have half walls, but a lot of glass partitions. He wanted to be able to have, bring nature into the house, because he's organic. So you can look through and see a lot of glass. Your eyes are drawn outside to the trees and the outside. Uh, so that's typical of the external of the house for Frank Lloyd Wright. Here's the other cabin that's out there now. This is a small cabin that was the land office. And um, you can see that uh, they've changed it. They've made it, it's a one bedroom thing now. But it was just one room. It's, it's got a nice fire, fireplace, a field stone fireplace. Um, it's board and batten, as you can see. This is a wonderful historical society photograph from the archives here of, um, I think this was maybe 1912, uh, the Comb Clubhouse. This is how it looked when it was built. A few things were changed. These windows up here were supposed to be strip windows like these down here, supposed to be all glass. Um, but you can see the window patterns, the beautiful window mullions patterns. Um, I think it's a great photograph to show what we had. Unfortunately, it's not here anymore, but we had it. And there used to be a, an open veranda, a balcony up here, which is gone. 
And there used to be more vertical piers. You saw in his original design, there were more vertical flower piers and stuff like that. And, and the board and batten is supposed to wrap around at the end, the small, small differences. And it's a little rougher construction than the others were. But Wright liked that. He wanted it to be kind of fibrous wood in natural state. He believed in everything in natural materials, materials in their natural state. So he liked the wood kind of unfinished, maybe stained, not painted. Uh, anyway, that's, that's the Como Orchard Clubhouse. Okay. Saw that before. Now this, I'm sorry about the photographs, not, well, it comes out okay, I guess, but this is the second project. The first project, the clubhouse and the houses, were all built in one year, between May of 1909 and basically April of 1910, Como Once they finished that project, they started building this one. Uh, or started working on it. This is Bitterroot Town near Stevensville on the east side highway. There's nothing there because it wasn't built. The only thing that was built, one, one item was built, was the Bitterroot Inn. Um, and it's 126 feet long, uh, not as long as the, uh, the Comorgia Clubhouse. It's also two-story, and I'll show you a photograph of it. This was supposed to be markets, places for people to have their houses up here have their plots of, or, of apple trees out in the valleys and the meadows, and um, they would basically take their products to the markets and market them. And the markets are on roads, so trucks from town could come and take your products, your, your apples, into town. Um, the first design he did of this was much more elaborate. It had 50-some buildings downtown, had an opera house, a civic center, a railway station, underground railroad. I mean, they told him to design a town for 1,000 people, and he did it. But then when they saw nobody was investing, he scaled it back to just a number of houses around and a golf course and basically this, these areas to market. These are office buildings for downtown, though. They did have those. So he's designing a whole town. And he, I, you can't see it on this plan, but he was going to have four houses together on these quadrants, on these uh, quadruple block plans, square blocks. And there were going to be 13 of those blocks with four houses on each to start out with. Big project. And he loved it because it's town planning. Como Orchard is a summer retreat, but this is a real town, you know? And this town, he's going to have, not only is he going to have uh, markets, he's going to have a cultural center, um, he's going to have um, a civic center, he's going to have all kinds of different ideas which he liked to do for people. But uh, anyway, it's an important document because it was a real, first real foray for modern architects in the early 1900s in the United States to go into town planning. So it's an important document in town planning, even though it was never built. But what was built, now these are some of the houses that were designed for it too. Two-story, a lot of them. Uh, you can look at these because later we'll see some houses that are in question. They don't know if they're Frank Lloyd Wright houses or not. Um, but these are two-story, but they also have some one-story. You can see the window designs and the board and batten and uh, the open porches. Never built, we don't think. Here's a house on East Side Highway that some people had argued down there in the valley that this was a Frank Lloyd Wright house. It was actually built in 1912. It's a craftsman, as similar to the Frank Lloyd Wright to the Bitterroot plans, but not, they don't think it is. Donald Leslie Johnson, the architectural historian, came down here and researched it and said no. And the lady that owns all this property, Mrs. Moody down in Stevensville, I don't know if you know her, the Moody family. Um, they say, no, it's not. There's another house in question on East Side Highway. It may have been. People wonder. You saw their diagram before. You can't tell. But um, some people think, well, maybe this was a 
Frank Lloyd Wright design house changed slightly, but people said no, they've looked the records up and said no, it wasn't one of the company plans. Here's the Bitterroot Inn, this was built. Talk about Wright legacy. And this is a, this is a great historical society photograph. The windows are really nice, I think, with the mullions. And uh, uh, it has um, some vertical piers that the home warriors didn't have. You can see the construction is a little bit better finished. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, again, about 125 feet long. Um, and it's um, hip roof and so forth. But I think it's a, it's a great photograph of the Bitterroot Inn. We lost this. And um, I've actually gone around trying to talk to people about possibility, would anybody like to rebuild the Bitterroot Inn? You know? <laughs> Wouldn't even have to be in Stevensville. It'd be nice if it were because uh, what is the nature preserve? Is it the Metcalf is near, down there near there? You get off. And what they did in the old days, people get off the train there and they just have cars come out from the inn and pick people up and take them in and they would stay there. And this unfortunately burned in 1924. So this is 1911 when it opened, 1911 in February. And um, so it's sad that we lost it. And the sad thing when we lost it, the development company that did all this work down there that promoted this whole thing it was called Brivco, Bitterroot Valley Ir Irrigation Company. Uh, Dinsmore and Moody and all those guys. All the records were in here when it burned. The office was in there. So we lost all those records, but we thought, well, maybe we're still safe. Maybe before that, we thought, well, maybe we can go back to Taliesin to the Frank Lloyd Wright people and find the records there. Find out who were the investors, what happened, why did the projects fail, why, you know. But, the, fire, the Frank Lloyd Wright files burned at Taliesin in 1914. So, you know, they are, the historians have gone down there and found out that there's, there's nothing left. So, uh, Taliesin itself says they don't have anything from 1913 before. Here's another picture of the Bitterroot Inn. Gives you an example of the board and batten architecture. Um, you go out there now where it was on the highway where uh, Six Mile Road, East Side Highway, you can still see some, some uh, little pieces of their drain pipes and a little bit of foundation was out there, but it's pretty, uh, there's not much left for a few pieces of the rubble. This is a house in Hamilton on South 3rd Street that, remember I mentioned the architect Perry Ansley picked up right and took him all around for three days in the Bitterroot in February 1909. Um, Ansley had this land in, on South 3rd Street in Missoula, in Hamilton, he wanted to build a house for his daughter. Has anybody heard this story, by the way, about Ansley? Well, it's very, it's a big debate down there. But um, Ansley claims that when Wright was down there with him, he talked Wright into designing a house for his daughter, for Hamilton. And this is the house, still there. This, I, we took this photograph not long ago. But, um, but then Donald Leslie Johnson, one of the architects, historians who really specializes in writing, did a lot of interviewing people down there, talked to everybody. And they're not so sure. They, don't, they think, well, maybe not, maybe not. Um, but you know, because it's, it's got a lot of right characteristics, though. You know, it's horizontal, but the windows are not stripped, you know. And he has a porch. Wright didn't like porches, especially out front. Uh, it has a basement. He never liked basements, except for Dana House. Um, so it, but it does have the hip roofs, kind of pagoda look and the, the vertical, the horizontal uh, effect, and some strip windows at the bottom. Um, and so people are not really sure. But the interesting thing is um, the guy in Hamilton, remember I told you who was working for Moody, was a guy named Frederick Nichols, who was a friend of Frank Lloyd Wright from Chicago. And Moody sent Nichols there, Fred, you go down there and do this thing, right? 
So Nichols goes down, stays in Hamilton, does this thing. Next thing you know, this house pops up. Nichols' house in Chicago, that's his house. Now, some similarity. They've made some changes in this house from the original picture I have in my Frank Lloyd Wright Encyclopedia. The picture in the encyclopedia looks even more like the house on South Third Street in Hamilton. They see a lot of similarities uh, to the style. So maybe it's possible that Frank Lloyd Wright said, Nichols, uh, give Ansley your plans for your house, you know, in Chicago. I don't know if it's possible. Rick Newby and I looked into this. We couldn't find out for sure. We don't know. We're still looking at it. Uh, but it's an interesting thought because there's some similarities. And maybe if the locals are right down there, that might be a Frank Lloyd Wright house. So here's Alpine Meadows today in Como Orchards. When you drive in uh, to b between those beautiful pines coming off of Bunkhouse Road into the complex, there's part of the big ditch, the 54-mile big ditch that still exists. And one of the reasons they think the project might have failed was because it was so expensive to build this, this, this irrigation canal and to maintain it. And, and uh, Kate's documented this very well in her, her nomination for the project to be part of the historical record. Here is, here's Alpine Meadows now. You can see the, the Bitterroots and so close to it. And they've got these buildings out there. And you can actually, they actually have one that's kind of like a hotel you can stay in if you have a large group. Here's the cider house recently built. It's just a big meeting house and dining room. And it's got a little bit of Wrightian touches to it. Roland tried to keep it. Okay, all right. So uh, that is the Bitterroot projects. You saw, you saw the Bitterroot Inn, beautiful, cars out front. You saw the Combe Orchard Clubhouse with the horses and wagons out front. You saw the, the two houses that still remain. You saw the plans for a town and the plans for a community of uh, mountain retreat. Um, now we shift over to um, 1959. It's only 50 years later, right, still working. He's, this is, this is uh, his last year, though, of his life. In 1959, he and his chief architect and design draftsman, a guy named John Howe, uh, who has lived, I believe, in Columbus, Montana, or uh, I, I called him one time, but he, he supervised the construction of the next building, which is the one in Whitefish in 1959, 50 years later. So we've got bookends for Wright. We've got his early period and we've got his late period. That's kind of unique. A lot of states don't have both. This is the Morrison Frampton, Frampton Morrison Law Office in Whitefish. Dennis, does that look like how? Remember it? Yeah. It's, and they. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. There's a plaque here you can't see. There's a. This is his favorite Wright's favorite color called Cherokee Red, and he likes this orange hue of brick because he likes the colors of nature and fall. And there's one red brick over here you can't see that has Frank Lloyd Wright's signature on it, card carved into it. And that's the right imprimatur. If the building has that on it, you know the right was involved in the designing it. And he didn't give it to everybody. And this one has it. This is in Whitefish. And Dennis knows Whitefish very well. City manager there. Um, the reverse, the he, right was used in concrete at this phase. In 1959, he started, all of his buildings were always horizontal and square. Now he, he falls in love with the curve all of a sudden. And he builds Grady Gamage Auditorium at Tempe, Arizona State University, a bunch of other buildings that have curves in them now. And this is what he was playing with, the reverse curve, back and forth. And it's uh, uh, up there on the trim. Um, but basically, this is a new style. You know, he's got, he went from prairie style, we saw, then he did those, those Mayan pre-Columbian textile blocks, 
And then in 1936, he shifts over to something called Usonian. And Montana's got two. We've got the prairie-style variant, the rustics, and then we've got the Usonian. And that's kind of unique because not many states in the West have both, very few. So we bookend right. We see him as he develops his phase. So here he is, the, the orange hue. There's a 64-foot-long uh, bank of, of floor-to-ceiling windows over there that you can't hardly see. Um, and um, uh, basically, it's 128 feet long, about the size of the Bitterroot Inn. Here's what it was. In 19, it was built in 1962, designed in 59, built in 62 after Wright had passed away. Then, this is 1965, it becomes a bank, the first, inter first state bank. You can see there's still the big eyeball because this was Dr. Lockhart. It was Lockhart's medical building. It was an ophthalmology clinic when it first designed. And that's the big eyeball that's disappeared. Dennis, do you know where that is? That thing's disappeared. If you can find it, it's worth a lot. <laughs> Somebody decided to get rid of the eyeball and it became a bank. You know, so it's fascinating. See the banks of windows now? This is typical of Usonian-style architecture that Wright developed in the 1930s. It's a lot simpler, a lot smaller. It's one story, flatter roofs. Uh, they use only four building materials, concrete for the floors and for some of the trim up there, uh, brick, wood, Philippine mahogany or cypress only, standardized for interchangeable wood, um, and um, glass. So, lots of glass. So, very simple to build, standardized materials, lots of glass, kind of ranch style is what it really is. Sorry, in 1936, he would hate to hear that, but that's what it resembles. Um, here's the inside. He's got this, this polished concrete floors. And one of his friends was Hib Johnson from Johnson Wax, who came up with this wonderful floor uh, polish that works so well on his floors. But that's, uh, that's, uh, you see there's a lot of light, and he has clear story windows up above to let light in. And instead of art glass windows, he has clear story windows now, and a lot of times he has cutouts in the wood that, that reflect patterns on the walls. But let me show you the, um, well, I must have missed, um, placed. I had, I had some other pictures, but I don't see them here, so here they are. There is the, uh, see, this is the Usonian style that's coming to in 1936. In Washington, D.C., this house exists. It's called the Pope Leahy House. It's out in Alexandria, and it's, uh, it's quite beautiful. And uh, this one was actually built in 1939. Um, but you can see the simple materials, no, more, no longer those wonderful art glass windows, right? Now he's got just cutouts of wood, but they, they cast the most beautiful shadows when the sun comes in, down into the living room and the dining room. Uh, and it's all, it's all wood, you know, cypress in this case, Philippine mahogany in the case of Lockhart. Uh, brick, uh, concrete, very simple, um, and kind of ranch style modern. And it's low and spreading. Uh, there's the interior. Very simple. Built-in furniture was typical for him. Not many walls in there, lots of glass, you know? Lots of air, lots of space, what he called freedom, democracy, space, American architecture, not Baroque, not Renaissance, not Tudor. I like them all, but I like Victorian too, but this is the Yahara Boathouse. And the reason I put this up at the end here is because um, this is a building he designed in 1902, and it's in the Wasmuth portfolio was never built. It was designed for, for, uh, um, for, the, boat, for the University of Wisconsin uh, rowing team um, in, in Madison. 
never built. So Buffalo gets the idea. Buffalo, New York gets the idea. Hey, we'd like to have Yahara Boat House. We'd like to have a Frank Lloyd Wright building. They got the plans from Taliesin. They bought them. And they built, in Buffalo, the Yahara Boat House, 1902. And Park City, Park, the, there's a Park, Park City uh, Hotel and Bank in Mason City, Iowa, that was uh, falling apart and had uh, no longer been used and was rebuilt by Mason City, Iowa. Uh, there's a number of places around the country that have rebuilt Franklin Wright houses. And so places that were lost can be replaced, which is a good lesson for us. Maybe someday, if we're lucky, we get the Como Orchard Clubhouse back, or maybe we get the Bitterroot Inn back, right? <laughs> I wouldn't mind having a few more cabins either, you know? But, so if you know anybody interested, I mean, Buffalo's a great example. And this is typical of his early style that drove the Europeans crazy. The Europeans said, wow. Somebody building a cement, that's a, that's a, we use that for gutters, you know? Frank Lloyd Wright called that his humble servant. Cement, concrete, he loved it. It's plastic, he can mold it any way he wants. It's durable, it's beautiful. Uh, if you've ever seen Unity Temple. And that reminds me of another concrete building called the Larkin Building, built in Buffalo in 1902. Very famous in the history of modern architecture. Very plain, no outward windows, interior atrium. First ever built, Frank Lloyd Wright came up with in Buffalo. In, um, yeah. Buffalo, and um, it was all concrete, just like Unity Temple. Um, so um, that's an example of a building that is lost. It was torn down in 1950, but it's still remembered and talked about by all the architectural historians today. Same thing for Como Orchard, you know, same thing for Bitterroot Town. These are still things that are lost, but they're not gone. They're part of Montana's legacy, part of modern architecture legacy. And so, um, so Montana's got a lot to be proud of in terms of Frank Lloyd Wright. And I'll leave you with that. Not bad, huh? Yeah. If you give to Whitefish, you might want to take a look at it. At Morrison's, they're very good. They have a little Frank Lloyd Wright.